My guest this week has a 50-year career in TV writing, music and television producing, and radio production. He has worked with comedy greats John Belushi, Carol Burnett, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, Christopher Guest, Billy Crystal, and Martin Short. He is a recipient of the Humanitas Prize and the Television Critics Award for Outstanding Writing and Television Special. Joining myself and SNL expert James Stevens is the great Bob Tischler. Thanks, Bob. How are you? Good. And um, I know that you're a New York City person, born and raised? Yeah, I actually was born in New Jersey. Okay. Uh, moved to uh, New York City, uh, I think, in 1969, and uh, lived in New York City until 1988. The, year, uh, the years I worked on the National Lampoon and uh, SNL. Okay, so you first moved there, you got a movie called Early Without Redeeming Social Value. I'm sorry, say that again? The year that you moved to New York City, you worked on a movie called Utterly Without Redeeming Social Value? I don't, never heard of that. I I don't do not recall that at all. How about Hi Mom with Robert De Niro? Uh, I was, I worked uh, in a production company that produced Hi Mom, but I had nothing to do with it. Oh, okay. So what got you into the National Lampoon Radio Hour? Uh, well, I had been working doing uh, commercials for the TV spots and radio s- uh, spots for the movie companies when they used to do them out of New York. Uh, and I had hired Chris Guest to uh, be a voice uh, on a movie called Mad Dogs and Englishmen. And we struck up a friendship and we started doing things together in the studio, just fooling around. He would uh, improvise and I would get sound effects to it. And uh, one day out of nowhere, he gave me a call uh, and said that their National Lampoon was doing uh, their first comedy album, and they needed somebody to do production on it. And I got pulled into that and started a relationship with Michael O'Donoghue and a lot of the other Lampoon people. So when it came time to do the National Lampoon Radio Hour, uh, I got a call to come in and produce it. So, Bob, this is exciting. The, the, your background originally was in radio commercial advertisements, right? Is that right? Essentially. And then you became this, uh, found this path of just finding a way of, of doing the, the audio work and the, and, the, and the technological behind the scenes recording part, but with the comedy expertise, kind of, right? Right. Well, the thing is, I was uh, I had gotten a job as an apprentice in a place that did sound for all these uh, for basically film and and radio and all kinds of production. I learned how to be how to engineer and how to do production. Uh, But I'd always been interested in comedy, so comedy kind of came naturally to me. Naturally to me. Who were your comedy inspirations as a child or teenager? Uh, Bob Newhart, button down mind of Bob Newhart. Uh, George Carlin, uh, when I was a little kid, it was uh, Jerry Lewis. Uh, a big influence was uh, the 2,000-year-old man. Uh, a friend of mine and myself would uh, take the different parts and memorize them and, and do them together. So we were, I was really into comedy. And you worked on the Saturday Night Live album that came out after the first season. Yes, it was a compilation album. 
Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, Donahue was uh, in charge of, the, of producing it, and I just put it together for him, basically. So in that process, as producer-editor, was it, was it more balances? Was it helping Michael determine the material and and what was that process yeah it was all that was it was helping figure out what material would fit together and then uh re-editing re-editing it a little bit and putting and balancing it out to be on a record it was a pretty simple project actually but that's yeah that's a pretty uh well-known uh album and that's the, i mean we're gonna get to some more <laughs> albums that are really well known that you've produced as well but that's uh, that's really cool and then you produced the uh, original Blues Brothers album, Briefcase Full of Blues. Uh, yes, I did. Well, I had, uh, you know, when I did the National Lampoon Radio Hour, uh, I had I had really formed a very close relationship with John Belushi. So when it became time to do the Blues Brothers, uh, he called me to do it. And uh, it was great. It was, it was a terrific experience because we just did it really for the fun of it. We just, you know, the, uh, the Blues Brothers opened up for Steve Martin at the Universal Amphitheater. This is before it had a roof on it. Uh, and uh, it was amazing because even though Steve Martin was really hot, people showed up to see the Blues Brothers. They were dressed as the Blues Brothers. We recorded for nine nights. Uh, it was a great band. And most of uh, my production work, besides doing the recording, was editing the different songs together from the different nights and taking the best parts. And there was a lot of that going on. Uh, we had a great uh, drummer, Steve Jordan. So the rhythm of uh, the songs is pretty much the same going through. So it was uh, basically you had to make sure that the tempo was the same and the, uh, everything matched, but it was more an editing job than anything else, editing and mixing. That's, no, that's fantastic, because obviously we know that becomes like number one album. Well, that was a big surprise. The- All of a sudden it was number one, and uh, Soul, Soul Man was a big hit also off the album. So uh, all of a sudden we had this number one album on our hands. So in that process, was it, uh, I mean, how much of it was, was your, uh, you know, uh, decisions to just, you know, um, we're going to go with this cut here, a better mix than this night here. I mean, was that pretty much? Uh, me and Paul Schaefer. We worked Paul, really yeah. closely together on it. Uh, Paul Schaefer was the, basically the leader of the band. Uh, Fantastic band. He was in the band. studio with me all the time we were producing it. And then you did, right? There was three other uh, Blues Brother albums to come. Uh, right. Over time. Uh, well, there was the, the movie album, which was also a big album. Uh, and it was quite a big hit. Uh, and then there were a couple of other uh, live albums, uh, one of which uh, we did a lot of uh, overdubbing in a farm in Massachusetts. Um, you know, basically, the idea was to John wanted to be away from drugs, and I wanted him to be away from drugs, so we decided to do it in a rural area in Massachusetts on a farm. Well, and you mentioned John again. Let me just, if I can backtrack here, I, I understand obviously your relationship with him. You guys were great friends during the Lampoon and Radio Hour days. And obviously as a as a radio producer and your, your background in audio, you've had this, you know, record collection or whatever. I mean, is it right? You've helped kind of his introduction or maybe just a little bit of study of blues even prior to what we know of John and the blues brothers now. Right. Well, he, when I, I, we lived, he lived in a village and I lived in Chelsea and he'd come over to my apartment uh, where I had my, a, a big record collection, a lot of blues and it was all in alphabetical order. He would just 
was a typical Belushi. He would just take all the records out, take the records out of the jackets, throw the jackets on the floor, listen to them, and leave. And then there was this big mess to clean up. But it was it was fun. That's why they call uh, him America's yeah. guest. Yes, he was. <laughs> he was America's guest for sure. What was it like working on Mondo Video? Uh, Mondo Video was quite an experience because uh, there was a lot of tension between uh, myself and Michael O'Donoghue at that point uh, because he directed it and, uh, you know, I would get things back. uh, And one example is people were sitting around the table and it would go to and I would get I would look at the master shot and there would be a bunch of books on the table and I'd go to another shot and all the books would have moved. So he just really didn't know uh, a lot of the technical parts of directing, and uh, it, it did cause a lot of tensions between tension between us at the time. And you got to work with Sid Vicious, right? Uh, I didn't actually work with Sid Vicious because uh, I, I wasn't involved in the shooting of that at all. It was all post-production. So was post-production, was it in addition, because you mentioned the books moving, so was it was it beyond just the audio? Was it video editing as well for you? Yeah, yeah. I participated in the video editing um, more than more than just audio. It was, just, it was basically I was in charge of post-production on it. Excellent. Very cool. And then in 1981, he comes back to Saturday Night Live and he brings you with him. And right. with Dick Ebersole, you're like the trifecta head of the show. And were the decisions made between you three? I'm sorry, can I say that again? Were the decisions made be- between you three? Or did Michael have more of the upper hand or Dick? or? Well, when I first arrived there, Dick was in charge and... Michael was, uh, I think he called himself Reich Marshall. He didn't want a, a regular title. Uh, and I was to run the writing staff. Uh, eventually, I became a supervising producer of the show and basically was uh, in charge of, uh, Dick was Dick handled more of the business. He was really good at working with the network and I handled more of the comedy. Yeah, you. It seemed. It seems from from just uh, what we know now and observing and you know studying it kind of is that you were what most people refer to as like the showrunner these days. You know, uh, whereas you said Dick was probably really pretty good with the network, but you were essentially, if I'm not mistaken, writing, rewriting. You know, working with the creative types. Yeah, I was doing all that, but I would I, I would still say that he was he was the main. Uh, person in charge, I was under him. So sure, uh, sure. You can call me the showrunner, but I did all that stuff. Yeah, he was the executive producer, and uh, yeah. But no, Ian, as you were as you were saying, we're we're entering into uh, uh, Bob and and uh, Michael coming back to the show under under uh, Dick's leadership. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, he was referring to it around this time, Michael, as a, as a death ship. Yes, Michael's, uh, he, he referred to it as a death ship because he wanted it to die. He wanted to basically do one more season and go down with it. The problem is, is that nobody else, nobody had that attitude. Everybody wanted the show to continue. Everybody wanted to do a good show and make it a success. And it uh, really led to... Uh, uh, 
a big blow up between Michael and, uh, and, and Dick. And uh, I basically had to uh, choose between Michael, who was my friend, and right and wrong. <laughs> and he was in the wrong. And uh, it was a very, very tough time. Very tough. No, and this is really, I mean, for the show that, again, you know, that just the general scope of it. I mean, we've just 46 seasons. I mean, no one, no one at the beginning and no one, I'm sure probably when you were there expected it to have this, this, this life, this sort of institutional, you know, being probably of what it is. But, you know, we're talking about this time that's really interesting, Bob, where, uh, again, you've had this friendship for such a long time with, with uh, Michael. And uh, again, certainly don't, you know, don't want to speak ill of those that are no longer with us because, you know, I've read Dennis Perrin's book and I know Ian has, and, and we've, we've uh, met with Dennis on a few times and, and just really fascinated by the whole thing. It's just um, to understand it is just, this is really just exciting to kind of hear from you a little bit, of course, want to, you know, do right by everybody. So there's this, there's, if I'm not mistaken, there's like kind of this infamous, or, or just, you know, notorious meeting of December, I think, of 1981, where the cast is in Dick's off office, you know, at the end of the, you know, we're getting ready to go on a holiday break or something. And uh, I think, is that the meeting that he didn't really want you to even be there for? Yeah, this was a meeting before I showed up, actually. Uh, it's a very famous meeting where he took a, uh, a spray can of paint. I think he sprayed the word danger on the wall up in, uh, on the 17th floor, uh, and basically just tried to scare everybody. Uh, you know, Michael was a very, very strange guy, a genius, but really, really dark. Uh, one of the true dark personalities that I've ever known. Uh, and uh, he created a lot of uh, tension on Saturday Night Live, and he did it on purpose. Uh, you know, I'll always uh, look back at my relationship with uh, Michael as something I really loved. I really, he was really close to me, but he just pushed it. He pushed it with everybody. Uh, there's so many people that he alienated and ended, ended relationships with. It was bound to happen. Well, I'll, and I will turn back to Ian here. Sorry, Ian, but to just say, you know, it's interesting to just hear all of this because, I mean, gosh, at, at the beginning, he was the person I, I think largely responsible for the tone of the show. He's the first person to, to you know, in that Wolverine sketch, that very opening was the first person to, you know, utter a line of dialogue. And, you know, there's so many things that he uh, did on the show, a lot of it dark, right. um, but really, you know, well received and things that, you know, our, our fans of comedy have enjoyed over the years. But uh, yeah, there's there's this interesting you know, Ian, you've talked to some people on this podcast, actually, about that December uh, 81 meeting who just, you know, were kind of <laughs> scared the crap out of him, I think. Yeah, Mary and Robert. He, he was a showman. It, it, it was definitely a show. Um, but he was, uh, you know, I, I'm really glad I, I knew him. I'm really glad I knew him for all those years. I'm, I, I'm sorry that it ended up like it did, but uh, that's the way it happened. Now, I've always noticed in that first season, season seven, that the shows got off to, and they were they were really good. Um, you had the first Buckwheat sketch, you had the little Richard Simmons. Um, the Tim Curry episode is, is really good all the way through, the Bill Murray episode. Right, that was the, actually, I think the Tim Curry episode was one of the first episodes that I wrote on. 
It was the uh, Mick Jagger special. Oh, that's a uh, great sketch. Barry Blaustein and David Sheffield and myself wrote. And that was in place of uh, Silverman's Bunker, correct? Right. And Silverman's Bunker was the one of the big bones of contention that happened between Dick and Michael. And when you guys came back from the December break, it just seemed like the show was different. I mean, it was one person, the creative force, I guess, left, and the show was just not as it was not as edgy for that rest of that season. Well, Michael definitely brought an edge to the show. Uh, he, he brought danger to Saturday Night Live, that's for sure. And I'm learning that a lot of the writers took his tone with and wrote sketches that they thought were either dark or had to be more dark mm-hmm. in order to get on. Right. And then you see like episodes, plus the hosts were not what we would consider like, what's the word? Uh, hip. Uh, John Madden. Uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce Stern's pretty. Um, well, it was, uh, it was hard to get hosts at first. You know, it's, uh, I think the first, it was Susan St. James, George Kennedy, Donald Pleasance, uh, Warren Hutton were the first few guests, Bernadette Peters. Yep. Uh, names, but not big, big names. You know, after the first season, we started to get uh, bigger names. But we did have some big names in that first year. We had Johnny Cash. I was going to mention that episode. Uh, Danny DeVito, Olivia Newton-John. Uh, we, and Bill, I got Bill Murray to, to do the show. Basically, because we needed somebody really pulling ratings. And uh, as a favor, he kind of did the show. And that was an important uh, episode, too. I remember the cold open. And, and his, if I'm not mistaken, his brother was uh, on at the time, right? Yeah, Brian. Brian on uh, on uh, update or SNL news, whatever right. they called it then, <laughs> right? Uh, but to, to the to the writing and to your role again, Bob. Uh, you know, heard a little bit. Uh, by the way, love the recent. I'll do a plug <laughs> if I can. Ian, just the the Gary and Kenny show uh, interview that was a uh, relatively recent was was a great listen. Uh, Bob, your participation in that it was one. a lot of fun to do. Uh, Gary's one of my favorite people in the world. So, Gary's so the best, nice. and it might have been on that one where I where I where I heard, uh, or maybe it was something that I read. I can't remember, but you know, you didn't really consider yourself a writer, really, before coming to SNL. And no, I had I had written, but uh, I really didn't. I'd, I'd written on the National Radio Hour, but it was more writing and improv, improvisation. When I came to Saturday Night Live, just out of need, I started writing because we needed we needed writing done and i met uh blasting and sheffield we became really close friends really quickly and we had uh we shared a sense of humor with each other so we wrote a lot of pieces together so you quickly enjoyed that skill that you had that maybe wasn't part of the i don't know your your forefront at the prior to that not only did, not only did i enjoy that but i enjoyed coming to Saturday Night Live without having an agent because I, I didn't have an agent at all. So I didn't pay anybody 10%. Excellent. It was really weird. And you didn't so, have to make a package either. You didn't have to send scripts and. Right. You know, I, uh, I've had a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of luck and in my career and a lot of it has to do with 
you know, you're working with somebody and they like you and they recommend you to someone else. Belushi was a big, uh, Belushi really, I would go places and somebody would say, well, Belushi was here and he was saying how great you were. And he, he would just, that, that's the kind of guy he was. If he liked you, he would really uh, promote you to his other people. And that's how Tim Kazerinsky got on the show, right? Just by word right. of mouth from John Belushi. Right. And the then- Belushi endorsement uh, goes a long way for sure. Um, so with uh, Sheffield and Boston, which I know that you guys still uh, to this day have a have a great friendship, and you guys right. are writing and that kind of thing. But as as the head writer, you've got to do this. Uh, you know, kind of rewrites and be the head of all this, as well as that that. Uh, unfortunate moment or, or time between dress and air where you've got to kind of pick the show, right? Can you talk us kind of through that? Well, what happens between dress and air is, you know, you do the dress, you do the dress rehearsal and you're bringing 14 or 15 sketches to the floor. Well, that, that's more than uh, can fit in to the actual time of the show. So just because of that, you're cutting a couple of sketches no matter what. We're also cutting sketches that don't work. Uh, and when you do the show, you have a rundown, you have an order, and everybody that's technical is involved in that order. For instance, the cameras have to move from one end of the studio to another to get to a certain sketch. There's five cameras, a crane. They have to move to whatever the next sketch is. Makeup has to be done. Costumes have to be put on. What happens is you have this schedule that's set for the air for the dress show and that go, all goes out the window because you're cutting sketches you're moving sketches people who have had 15 minutes to put makeup on now have five minutes same thing with costumes now the cameras have where they had 30 where they had two minutes to move to another part of the studio now they have a minute to go that's why you're a lot of times you're throwing uh films in not just to entertain but so you can have something on on the screen where you can move everything around uh, where you didn't have that uh, opportunity, you didn't have that uh, time frame before. So one of my jobs, the most unpleasant thing, was I had to, while Dick and David Wilson were meeting with a lot of the technical people to tell them what the changes were going to be, I went and met with the cast to tell them who was cut out of the show or who was a lot lighter in the show and who wasn't. And a lot of people did not take it well. And uh, it was one of the most unpleasant things I had to look forward to every single week. I can only imagine how difficult, yeah. Your time with the show was not really known for censor battles, but can you think of any particular real censor battle? Uh, Not offhand. It's just that uh, Bill Clotworthy, who was the censor for the show, uh, was a real nice guy, and we we actually really loved dealing with him. So, uh, you know, we did what everybody else does. With with they always does. you always came in with stuff that was worse than what you expected to put on. So you'd give him something to censor. He would censor it, and you didn't want that on on in the first place usually. So I can't think of anything specific just because it was a long time ago. Babies in makeup, possibly. Did you get? A- uh, babies in makeup. Uh, I, I think it went through a lot of arguments, but uh, it it ended up on the show. 
Right, and then people didn't I like it. That babysitting makeup. That's actually, uh, I'd like to see that again. That was a great piece. And then it, I remember it got a lot of bad mail, and that, so you showed it again, which is great. <laughs> Um, the, when the second season that you were, the full season, you brought in uh, Gary, Brad, and Julia to the cast. Right. And you had, like, a string of really, really good episodes in, in that season. What do you think that was? That Was it Piscopo and Murphy in their third season and Kazrinsky? And... Let's hire them all. So we did. Okay. So that was you and uh, you and Dick that went out there to see the yes. practical theater, yeah. Right. And I said, was you had a string of like really good episodes that season, and it was a really good season. And you think it was because uh, Joe and Eddie were in their third year, and the other guys that you hired in '81 were in their second year, and the other, and then the young kids were going for attention. Is that why the big reason that that was such a successful season? Uh, I think it's all of that. I think also once you do the show for a while, the writing gets a little easier. You know what you're doing. You're not making as many mistakes. Uh, Eddie was unbelievable to work with. I mean, Eddie would take anything that you wrote and make it better. Every single time. I mean, he just had this way of looking down, the, looking into the camera and making it funnier. And uh, he was just amazingly great to work with. What we know about the start of the week, at least in the, I guess, the current times, uh, you know, is that sort of Monday pitch meeting where the host comes in. I mean, is that, was that the same for, for you back in, in your era? Yeah. Yeah. Monday, uh, we'd uh, basically Dick and I would go to the uh, hosts, uh, to the hotel room, just talk to them for a little while. We'd all walk back uh, and we'd meet in Dick's office with uh, the host and all the cast members and all the writers. Uh, the host would basically tell us anything that he thought that they might want to do, any talents they had that we didn't know about. Uh, we'd been thinking about who the host, we, you know, we knew who the host was going in, so a lot of people would have ideas and we they would pitch them out and see if uh, they uh, were something the host was interested in doing or wanted to stay away from. Uh, at that point, uh, we would break up and everybody would go off and start writing. Uh, so you'd write uh, Monday through Monday night usually, uh, Tuesday, and then on Wednesday we'd have uh, a read-through. And we'd bring about 30, 35 sketches to read-through, pick maybe 15 or 16 out of those to uh, start working on. The sets would start getting being uh, built, the costumes would start being made. Uh, and, uh, by Thursday, we would be able to rehearse the sketches that didn't need big, uh, sets being built because the sets were still being built Friday, pretty much the sets were all done and we could do full rehearsals Saturday we do dress and then we do air. So Wednesday, no, that's, uh, Sunday we'd fall down. <laughs> right. Exactly. This just decision to, to mount things into the dress rehearsal was, was, uh, Dick and you and uh, uh, the host, essentially, or a small team kind of? Uh, yeah, it wasn't. You, the host really had some kind of input, but not a lot of input on that. And we, we, we want to get the host's, host's opinion on what they liked, but they wouldn't be part of that meeting. Uh, 
the years that Blasty and Sheffield were there, they were in on the meeting. Uh, Davy Wilson was in on that meeting, uh, and Dick and myself. Okay, and uh, you always, you always had somebody for one season who was who pitched Lillian Hellman's mayonnaise. <laughs> I remember the title, but I don't remember the sketch. <laughs> no, Terry Southern. That was his pitch every week. Okay. <laughs> Um, was it, would you have put more political satire in if you were the head of the show? Uh, you know what it is? You can really put political satire in when there's really stuff to put in. You know, I always say, you know, if we had Trump, (laughs) if things would have been a lot easier, but with Ronald Reagan, uh, who was uh, president when we were there, uh, there just wasn't much to hold on to. I remember Harry Shearer kept on trying to write Ronald Reagan pieces, but they were kind of boring, you know, so they didn't get on. Well, and uh, I don't know if I was even remembering to go here or not, but it, it, it's interesting, as you mentioned, Harry, uh, because he's, he's he, I think, just a really talented guy, you know, just great, great with the... Uh, the things that he's done, but actually has no love lost for SNL and, and left early in that season that he was there with, with you all. Um, you know, is there, uh, I, I guess that I don't remember if it was more of a him versus everyone or, or what your take is on that. Uh, he was very frustrated. He was frustrated because he wasn't getting pieces on and he basically said, I want to leave. And he said, yeah, God bless him. But there wasn't a big, there wasn't a big fight or anything like that. Okay. Right, right, right. Yeah, Ian and I are not here. Like we're not the gossip train. We're not trying to dig for the, the stories as much as just it's a it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. What was the Don Rickles episode like from a backstage point of view? Uh, it was very hard to control because. Um, he liked to uh, break up, and uh, I remember that Joe Piscopo uh, really wanted to try to break up with him, and it was kind of forced. So uh, that part of the show I, I did not like. I liked the, the week we spent with Don Rickles. It was a, a whole lot of fun. Uh, I don't think the show turned out as good as it could have. Uh, it was just a lot of breaking up during the show. And uh, that, that works when it's spontaneous and real, but sometimes it's not real. It was the longest monologue until last season. Right. <laughs> well, you mentioned Piscopo, and I remember reading, you know, his uh, defending or making a case for Frank Sinatra when he played that role, which I would imagine is a, is a writer's, uh, I don't know, negotiation a little bit when he's like Frank wouldn't do that or whatever yes I, I guess you've been talking to some people that was a uh, <laughs> that was heard a lot Frank wouldn't do that uh, the the weirdest thing uh, where Frank wouldn't do that is uh, there was a a, a, bit, a big piece that uh, Billy Crystal wrote it was uh, Sammy Davis Jr. writing in a limo with Frank Sinatra and then getting out of the limo and Billy Crystal breakdancing. And for a whole long time, it was Frank wouldn't do that. 
Uh, there, were, there were a bunch of Frank wouldn't do that sketches I could go through. I don't, I don't want to get too negative. Though. Well, no, no, and of course, but it's just it's interesting how, how how some of those things happen, especially when you're you know trying to write a piece, and sometimes right. it's like, well, I don't know that this character would necessarily do that either. But here right. here we are. We had one piece where Frank was supposed to jump off a ledge of a building, and Frank wouldn't do that. <laughs> it was a whole bunch of different characters committing suicide. That was uh, when Mayor Koch hosted the show. Right, exactly. What did you think of Larry the Lobster and the phoning uh, things? Well, that... I wrote Larry the Lobster oh. with Balthazar and Sheffield, so oh, I loved wow. it. Uh, and it was the very first phone-in uh, yes. piece. Uh, we got over 250,000 votes, on live votes on air that night, so it was really exciting. And I read that Larry actually died in the studio that during the show. There were about fifteen Larrys, and there was a big Larry actually did die, even though he was voted to live. And there was a big lobster fest after the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was you're right. I mean, it, it underscored the live television. It was on the heels of the uh, live call-in. You know, we're so accustomed to it in this day and age, but. And the other thing, uh, Ian, thank you for remembering to bring that one up, is there were so many things like that that I feel like you uh, and the team back then did that broke up the structure. Well, the biggest thing, and the thing, and my favorite sketch of all times uh, was a three-part episode, three-week episode. It was the assassination of Buckwheat. Uh, last name Sheffield and I wrote it. We had a lot of people angry at us because it took up so much of the showtime, but... I'm really proud of that piece. That's that's it was it was so much satire involved in it, and it, uh, it hit from a whole lot of different angles, and it was really funny. And Eddie was great. He played like it was all because Eddie wanted to kill the character. Eddie wanted to, we said I'm tired of doing this character. Let's kill him. I loved the character of the guy who kills Buckwheat, John David Stutz, uh, and also played by Eddie. Right, voted most likely to kill Buckwheat in his high school. Right. <laughs> There's so many great jokes on the media, and yet right. David Susskind. My favorite thing is the Pope's the Pope asking to see the video again. <laughs> right, I mean, because that's the thing is that you keep let's watch it again, which yeah. is just a you know being uh, the satire of just how when you don't have anything to say on the twenty four seven news, which wasn't even really a thing back then, but we're just gonna you know show the thing again. Right. And then we did the David Seskind show on the air. We had David Seskind interviewing all these people. It was it was it was a lot of fun. I one actually, of the highlights over the sorry Ian, but just over the years. I mean, that's just one of the the the, the top moments I think uh, for me and for many people is to just point to that. So, bravo, Bob. I worked with a guy, and he told me his father was the guy who yelled, "Hey, Mister Wheat." Oh. <laughs> he was he's still you know they're still proud of it to this day that's great oh that's amazing so at the end of the 83 84 season um eddie was gone and uh-huh. so was it decided that billy crystal would come aboard basically uh because billy had done the show uh and dick was convinced dick was just convinced that if we could get billy crystal to do the show would be worth it to do another year and uh i had worked with chris 
Billy and, and Chris were friends. Uh, I had worked with Marty. Uh, I think that Marty hadn't, I'm not sure that Marty knew these people yet, I think, uh, but he knew of them. Uh, so the whole idea was to, it, it was kind of a snowballing effect. Get uh, Billy, there's, there's a good chance of getting Chris. If we get Chris, there's a good chance of getting Harry Shear. Uh, and my philosophy was, let's work with funny people. Let's work with people who generate their own funniness. I mean, you know, having worked with Belushi and then also working with, on the, on the radio hour, you know, I worked with Gilda and, and, uh, Bill Murray and Brian Doyle Murray and, uh, Chevy Chase, Flaherty, Chevy Chase, uh, people who were just funny. And I was convinced if those people would be on the air and the show would be that much funnier. When you listen to the radio hour, you realize how funny Brian Doyle Murray is. Yeah. Brian Doyle Murray, uh, is incredibly talented. Uh, he was always known as the, uh, this is before when I first met him, he was known as the guy, the go-to guy at, uh, at second city. He was the, the best improvis improviser at second city by far. So, uh, He's, he, I haven't seen him in years. I love Brian, though. He's great. And well, Christopher Guest, I just have to say, uh, of all the people who, you know, there's those that we mentioned that were just on that one season of, of SNL, but Chris, you know, is known a lot for these these uh, kind of mockumentary things and everything. I mean, just one of the most underrated people of all time yeah, he's, he's just so i mean if you i've just spent hours and hours with him he's just so talented he's just so funny and the way he improvises it comes from nowhere it's not like a second city improviser who uses uh tricks and tools not not to put down second city improvisation but it's not the same chris basically you just don't know where it comes from it just it, it's it's genius and you guys are still uh, connected today, I assume. Uh, no, I've actually lost touch with him. I, oh, I, I would, I'd like to get touch with him. I'm, I live up in Northern California now, so I've lost touch with a lot of people. Yeah. How close was Andrea Martin to coming to that cast? Because I've heard. Uh, I actually don't. I actually don't know. I mean, there were people who wanted her. I think. I think Marty was uh, a big proponent of getting her. You know, he had worked with her a lot in second in. Uh, SCTV in Second City. Uh, I'm not sure everybody else was that enthusiastic about it. But it would have been a good choice. Uh, you know, we hired Cynthia Stevenson that year. Not Cynthia Stevenson, Pamela. Pamela, yeah. Uh, who, who, was, who was fun and, and, and funny, but not a great, not a great talent for that. It would have been much better to get Andrew Martin. Was there a host that... I'm, I'm not looking for um, Beretta. Uh, was there a host that disappointed you because you th you thought the show would have should have been funnier, and it was not because of the writing; it was because of the person. Uh, there's a lot. I mean, there's a there's a lot of hosts. Just you know, the best hosts were the hosts that wanted to do the show for the fun of doing it, not to promote anything. Uh, you know, the best, I, I had mentioned this on, uh, Gary's podcast, uh, that, uh, the bridge, the bridges brothers just did it cause they wanted to do it. 
and Jeff Bridges was just a delight to work with. I, I really don't want to mention any people who are, I have negative thoughts about, and there were a, a bunch of them. Um, but it was usually the people who were there just to promote something or for, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you somebody who uh, disappointed, disappointed us not because of anything that was bad about his personality. He just did not have the chops to do it. And that was Roy Scheider. He got so nervous because he was a film actor. He was not a, he was not used to an audience. He was not used to uh, doing anything live. And he was a great guy. He was a beautiful guy, but uh, it ended up that I don't think we wrote that well for him. And he just kind of choked on the air. There's that really funny Super Bowl ticket sketch that was written by Jim Downey. Uh-huh. On, on that episode. Usually anything Jim Downey writes is funny. Yes. Um, <laughs> you were the voice, not of Tippy Turtle, but the of the beginning of the show, correct? The voice of the beginning of the show? The, of the beginning of the cartoon. Um, I, you know what? I could, I might have been. I, I do not remember. You're credited, you're credited as... Oh. <laughs> the introduction of the of Tippy Turtle, and I talked to Andy Breckman about Tippy Turtle, and uh-huh. it, it's true that you guys got to stop doing it because somebody actually did one of the things that Tippy Turtle did. Uh, that I don't remember. Okay, but Breckman's much closer to that sketch than I was. On the deposit slip, just writing "this is a stick up" and then sticking it back in, and some guy oh. was, <laughs> and somebody did it and said, "I saw it on Saturday Night Live." Oh, really? I, yeah. I don't even remember that. Well, I do think uh, Ian and Bob. Bob made an appearance as uh, was it like playing the cigarette smoking doctor in uh, that's like right MTV News Two thing. Yes, I still uh, have my stethoscope actually and my uh, <laughs> the mirror thing for your head. I've kept that. Yeah. Uh, also, there was another time I was on on camera, which uh, was really weird. It was the uh, Johnny Cash show, and we did a piece that basically explained a lot of traits of Johnny Cash, why he wore black. And uh, the part that I wrote, uh, it was based on my childhood, was uh, how he got the tremolo in his voice. And uh, basically it was a, my father used to do this to me. He used to make me sing or have me sing and he'd do a chopping thing on my back. (laughs) And uh, so I wrote that into the sketch and we had some guy playing the masseuse and it came to dress rehearsal and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. So everybody said, you wrote it, get up there and get out there and do it. So I had to put on sweats and go out there on, on camera and chop at Johnny, Johnny Cash's back. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's very cool. What were some of uh, the musical guests that you remembered? Oh, God. Uh, there's so many. I mean, Queen. Uh, Men at Work, Joe Jackson, uh, who else? Um, Rod Stewart, Miles Davis. Uh, you know, you mentioned this group uh, earlier, but Fear was uh, a really interesting time. That was uh, Michael Adani's booking. I asked, I've asked everybody about that episode. Because <laughs> there's so many uh, different... Uh, Tellings of that story. Right. Uh, you know, Billy Joel was one of the guests. Yeah, uh, that was the great. Brothers. It was just, 
and I'll tell you one of the, this was a combination musical guest and guest host. One of the best things that happened, uh, on Thursdays, we would have rehearsals of the band. So, uh, when, um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name. Either when, Lil, uh, Michael McKeon or Lily Tomlin. No. Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder, oh. yes. I don't know what I was drawing a blank on. When Stevie Wonder hosted, uh, he sat down at a piano for his, because he was also the musical guest. And he just, he said, can you just run a tape? Because I, I, I think I have a, to- a, a song that I'm about to write. Anyway, he wrote a song right in front of us, sitting at, at the piano. And it was amazing. I mean, this guy is a true genius. It was, uh, it started in one key and started modulating and eventually came back to the same key again. It was just great. I'm sorry, when you that, get host and musical that's guests, a cool I story started... and also would love to, I'm sure you probably don't have that tape. <laughs> that would be a, a, a treasure if you did. No, somebody must have it though. He definitely recorded it. I'm sorry, when you said host and musical guests, I was thinking of Michael McKeon, who hosted and then performed as uh, the folksman mm-hmm. and jo- uh, Lily Tomlin who hosted and performed as gospel singer Purvis Hawkins. All right. So that's what I thought you were going to talk about. Oh, okay. No, no, no. But anyway, the, the, there were so many musical guests that uh, I can't even pick a favorite, but uh, it, it, it was great because you, you just meet all these different people that were your heroes. What was it like actually having Liberace on? I don't even remember having Liberace. He was on the Hulk Hogan and Mr. T episode. Oh, really? I, you know, I don't remember it. I no, he was in the Joe Franklin show sketch. He just oh, we... okay. You know, I got a call from Joe Franklin, uh, basically threatening me. And he said, uh, "If you keep on doing me, I'm gonna." You like a kneecaps? I mean, he actually says that. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's like this big, right? I'm guessing. (laughs) This beating is given to you by Matzah's by Strutz. (laughs) That's right. Well, I know you've talked about this a lot of times, uh, Ian, is about that that Robert Blake episode being uh, hard to uh, locate uh, all of the contents because it's been so so chopped up even in in, uh, reruns. I have it now, actually. I have the full Robert Blake episode. Yeah, I, I, I do too, actually. Yeah, Robert Blake was not our favorite host. No. It was that uh, the best little whorehouse on the prairie that was the, the sketch that was uh, uh, very difficult to come by. My memory of Robert Blake is this, that, uh, and I found out that this was actually Gary Kroger, who was the writer, that uh, right in front of us, he took, he took Gary's script and said, you know what I'm going to do with this script? I'm going to use it as toilet paper. And he wiped it on his ass. So it's safe to say he was not a guest on Nightline. Nightlife. Say, I remember, uh, as you were mentioning, the, the brief on-screen appearances that you've had over the the years there at SNL um, and that final episode in April 85 in the good nights I remember just seeing uh, distinctly Martin Short I think hugging you and hugging Dick um, uh, anyway it was just uh, 
uh, I remember that. And I also, like, it was a short season, right? Because I think there were supposed to be some more episodes planned for May that were canceled because of budget cuts or something. And that was the end of, of, of all your time there. Uh, I don't remember being sure uh, that it was anything cut. I think it may have been a shorter season just from the start. Uh, but I don't think there was any... I, I know there was a writer's strike that canceled a um, Eugene Levy and John Love and John Candy Hall of Notes episode. That was because they teased that in the film festival episode. Uh-huh. And then there was like a two week writer's strike. Yeah, I think there was a writer's strike. And, yeah. and then yeah, supposedly David Letterman was supposed to host a show in May. That could just be something that. I, I don't remember that. No. Right. Do you remember. Yeah. I I always heard that after the Franken and Davis Grateful Dead episode that got you know put the kibosh because of the writer strike in eighty one that Dan Aykroyd was supposed to host the show after that with Pat Benatar. Mm, I don't remember that. No. Okay, these are just things that show up on the internet. Right. <laughs> um, you probably know more about SNL than I do, actually. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> so when you did Nightlife. With yes, David Brenner, David Brenner, uh, you did not have. Um, like I said before, you did not have uh, Robert Blake on as a guest. No. <laughs> were, were you offered him? <laughs> no, I don't think so. You did have. But a re- that was doing nightlife was kind of an experience because uh, it was an everyday show with a monologue that was based on the news every day, and that was something I had never done before. So it was. It was actually great to be thrown into that uh, situation. And David Brenner knew his boxing. He had a lot of did, yeah. a lot of boxing guests. Those are the clips that are still around on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, he actually he took me to a uh, Mike Tyson fight in Atlantic City uh, with front row seats. It was, it was David was a really nice guy. He really was. And I want to talk about well, what? I, sorry, I'm sorry, Ian. I was just going to say before before we leave nightlife, if, if we do. Um, I learned again from the from your previous interview, Bob, that you uh, didn't know this, but you took Davey Wilson, the director from SNL, yes. over to Nightlife. Which, uh, again, Dave Wilson is, I think, uh, you know, you know, not no longer with us, but was somebody that I would have just loved to have a conversation with because it just seemed to be, you know, uh, integral to a lot of what the show is and has been over the years. So oh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we had, uh, you know, there was always the, what we call the Monday Davy and the Friday Davy. Two totally different personalities. Explain. The Monday Davy was, oh, we can do anything. Any, we can do anything. And then Friday Davy was, we can't do that. Impossible. I <laughs> uh, love it. People who uh, were on Dominion's cast uh, the season uh-huh. before you, they would say that uh, basically... Anything that was hard to shoot would not get done. And when Bill Murray came and hosted that second to last show, he'd be like, please, please, you know, you know, to the director, he'd be like, please, please let us do it. Let us do it. And he was himself, the original Davey Wilson that week only letting people do two camera or three camera sketches when, Uh. when the other people went for when the rest of the Dominion season, he was like, no, we can't do it. And she went, okay, we can't do it. So, Yeah, well, I'm sure, you know, he's David is one of those people who uh, the first thing he'd always say would be no. 
and then you have to break through that. But you, you had to know how to deal with him. Well, I think Michael O'Donoghue's uh, line is he's a, he's a pilot, but he's not a test pilot. He's a TWA pilot. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you about what's Alan watching, which I remember watching, actually. because Oh, okay. You're, you're one of the people who saw it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I remember there was a big deal in TV Guide. It was a close-up. No, it was a big hit. It, it was a uh, – it got incredible. I actually was just reading the reviews yesterday because I was uh, putting uh, – I was changing things on my computer, and it got amazing reviews. It was, And it was a, it's a great show. I'll still say that. And it was you, Blaustein, in Sheffield? Yes. So the reviews were good, but it was just the following is what is what was its demise. Is that how that worked? Uh, its demise was that Paramount hated it. Paramount never wanted to do it in the first place. They were forced to do it because of Eddie, because they had a deal with Eddie, and they did it kicking and screaming. They never understood it, uh, and they kind of killed it. And you did The People Next Door, which was a Wes Craven sitcom. People Next Door, uh, yes, but it, and it was uh, run by the uh, Sunshines, by uh, Maddie and Steve Sunshine. It lasted for six episodes. Yes, actually, Mary... It was not a good show. Mary Gross was on it. That's right. And I had this uh, Dennis Danziger, who wrote one of the episodes that was not aired. Uh-huh. So... I remember, I think I remember Dennis, yeah. But that was my, that was uh, really my early sitcom experiences, and it was... Uh, not a great one. So that's what made you want to go back to uh, working with Carol Burnett and Carol and Company? Well, what happened was I got offered the Carol. We had done a few episodes to People Next Door, and it was just horrible. It was just a horrible show to work on, and it was uh, not a good show. And I got an offer before, after about four episodes to come and do the, this Carol Burnett show with uh, Matt Williams. And so uh, secretly, I couldn't wait for the show to get canceled so I could take the job. And uh, that's what happened. And what was Carol like working with? Wonderful person. I mean, just she's uh, a little bit uh, you know, guarded about what she will do. Uh, but once she gets it, uh, she puts full effort into it. Uh, she's probably the nicest person you'll ever meet. I mean, just nice to everybody. Uh, so I have nothing but good things to say about her, for sure. And that show discovered Richard Kind. That's right. And he must be one of the nice. He seems like he's one of the nicest people. Very nice guy. I haven't seen him in years, but he was a nice guy. I'm sure he hasn't changed. You did. You did work with Cynthia Stevenson on a show called My Talk Show. Yes, that was a show. I had a uh, an overall deal with uh, Universal, uh, and. Uh, Part of that deal was to uh, to produce this show, and uh, it was an interesting show. It was uh, originally uh, started by uh, Second City. Uh, they were uh, the producers of it, uh, as well as Universal. And uh, you know, the premise was a woman who had a talk show in her house. Well, and I re- it seemed like uh, Cynthia Stevenson got some major praise for her, her role there. And uh, so, Bob, th- but this was your first time. Kind of- oh, right. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. Was it done like um, uh, Fernwood Tonight, where it was 13 weeks of five shows? Or 
it would have went on as long as it yeah yeah it was done every night it was uh i forget how many weeks we did but okay i'm just wonder if they still do that format of 13 and 5 and then they get picked up for another 13. oh i don't know okay and then you went to empty nest right what was it like coming into a long uh lasting series it's already been there for four or five seasons uh you know you basically just have to learn the characters that already exist uh and i think one thing i'm really good at is picking up the voices of characters uh so for me it wasn't too it wasn't too much trouble and and uh i remember the first uh show that i wrote got very well received so it was it was a lot of fun and then i became showrunner uh finally because the two showrunners were there left what did you do to prepare? Like, no, I, I, I do see your skill to be gone. I understand these characters and here's what I'm going to do. What was it? I mean, how well did you know the show? Did you know it pretty well prior to, or? I'd never seen it before. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So no, that's what I was going to say. So what was, what was your process to prepare to, to, to do? I had to watch well a lot of, I had to watch a bunch of episodes. Basically. Right. Right. And you know, I, I was familiar with Richard Mulligan. He's great. Who, uh, when you write for Richard Mulligan, you have to realize that anything you write is going to be changed. Not because he wants to change it, but because he just takes this a sentence and reads it differently than anybody else reads it. So it was it was interesting working with him. And that show was also transitioning from because you had Estelle Getty come on, and then you had also um, Marshall Warfield. Right. So you you got to uh, write for Sophia, right? Uh, I wrote more for Marsha than uh, I, uh, I. I wrote an episode that had to do with I. I, I heard that Marsha hated mimes, so I wrote a show that had to do with uh, mimes, and uh, she really she really liked the show. So it was, uh, and it was a really successful show. So uh, she, she was fun to work with, and she she gave me a lot of positive feedback right away. Was, I don't remember. I, I'll claim my ignorance here. Was this one of those that was taped in front of a studio audience? Yes. Right. Yeah, I've never worked for a show that wasn't in front of a studio audience. Except what's Alan watching, basically. Right. So, with Something So Right, you won the Humanist Prize with your something episode, something about an older guy. Right. Uh, would you like to talk about that episode? Uh... It was interesting. I, I found it interesting that I won a Humanitas Award for it because it was basically just about the human condition, and that's what they give the award for. But it wasn't. It wasn't a preachy show. It wasn't uh, for any cause or anything like that. It was just having to deal with your daughter marrying an old, not marrying, dating an older guy. Uh, and uh, so I was very surprised that it won the Humanitas. Well, I've had Jay Kogan on. He's one of the big guys with the Humanist Foundation. He talks about why episodes win the awards. And mm -hmm. That's basically what you said. You just situations that are in life. And then you did a show, which I love. And I don't care. Boy Meets World. I love Boy you Meets know, World. You know, it's funny. Uh, I get more feedback from Boy Meets World than anything else. Uh, when I meet people who are in their thirties, whatever, they grew up with it. I mean, they, a lot of people just grew up with that show and they, you know, the first question I always get is what's the panga like? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I was talking to Kevin Kelton, and uh, he. I asked. I said to him, "If you go, um, what same same question? What was Boy Meets World like?" And he goes, "Well, if I go to a party and, they, and somebody asks me what I do for a living, I say comedy writer. They say, well, what shows have you worked on?' I always say Saturday Night Live because everybody knows it. And then they look at them, and if they're above forty, I say Night Court. And if they're below, right. and, and if they're below forty, I say Boy Meets World. So." No, it's funny. You know, everybody they they get excited when they hear Saturday Night Live, but if they were if they grew up with uh, with Boy Meets World, that's the one they they concentrate on. Yeah, that I watched it in reruns because I was a little bit older than that demographic for that show. But yeah, so that was a very well written show, and you wrote the graduation episode, which is right where. The older brother sings to serve with love to Mr. Feeney at graduation, which is one of the funniest moments in a in a in a definitely in a TGIF sitcom. But but in a well, what, was, what was gratifying about working on that show because it wasn't a show that I basically would watch, but I had uh, my son was fourteen years old oh. when I did that show, so you know he got to bring his friends to to, to the show and it was worth it from that standpoint. Yeah, if you had a fourteen-year-old during that time, I, uh, I was going to say he uh, he was a he was a celebrity. Everybody wanted to, uh, right. yeah. So remind me again because I don't remember on this one was the because you were there the last couple seasons, I think. Last three what, seasons. Was it the uh, moving towards? Okay, this is we're going to make the end here. Would that was that was kind of planned out? Yeah, everybody knew the last season was the last season. It was nine years it was on, I think. Yeah. And William... But the, you know, they had gone from being grammar school kids to high school kids to college kids to getting married on the show. It was <laughs> nine years. And, and then they, they, brought it, they brought it back again a couple of years ago with the Girl Meets World, which I, I didn't see any episodes of, I have to admit. It's actually, I'm aware of it, but I don't know it either. I have a nine-year-old daughter, so we watched it. Um, they brought the char- almost all the characters back, yeah. and even uh, William Daniels made a couple of appearances. Really? Yeah, which is nice. So, do you have any other questions, uh, James? Well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Bob, you're. you're- one of your most current projects I just wanted to ask a little bit about was the uh, American Bystander, right? Yeah, this is good. This is pretty exciting for me. Uh, and we haven't really gone into production yet on it, but uh, American Bystander magazine, which I wasn't even aware of until they contacted me. Uh, it's a great comedy magazine. Uh, it's, the graphics are terrific and the writers are great. And a lot of the writers I had worked with before, um, the reason they contacted me was uh, Brian McConaughey was the one who started the magazine. And he worked for the National Lampoon, and he did a lot of work with me on National Lampoon Radio Hour. So he basically pointed them towards me, and uh, we're going to do a show. I wouldn't say it's similar to the Radio Hour, but it's going to be the same kind of production, high production value as the Radio Hour. Uh, we're uh, going through all the issues that have been published so far and i'm kind of pulling out things could be translated to audio uh we also have uh original pieces now being written by a lot of the writers 
Um, I think you interviewed uh, Sean Kelly. We're hoping to uh, get him to uh, maybe do a musical piece for us because he's a great lyricist. Um, uh, but uh, that's going to be an interesting project. We're probably going to get going in September on that. Uh, but we're doing a lot of background work on it now. So we probably won't see it released until probably Christmas. Yeah. Well, that's something we can uh, look forward to for sure. Um, Cause that, I mean, that does sound exciting and I didn't, I wasn't really uh, aware of the magazine either until just recently and started to look at it. And you're right. It's, there's the, it's kind of a who's who of writers involved. Right. And if anybody, I'm, I'll just put a little plug for it. I have nothing to do with the magazine really except for the radio show, but uh, AmericanBystander.com. Uh, you can get a couple of sample issues uh, on that PDF versions of it, uh, so you don't even have to buy the, the issues to see what it's like. But it's really a great magazine. And yes, I understand sure. uh, Don Novello is in the, is in the project. Uh, Don Novello has been contacted. He uh, wants to do the project. I, th- I believe he's he wants to do something with Brian Doe Murray, who's in of all places Kansas right now. Uh, as where as as where he lives is that where he yeah. lives he lives in kansas now yes uh and i'm waiting to get in touch with him again uh, so anyway don uh dave thomas has agreed to do the show a whole bunch of writers that uh either work on uh national lampoon or sctv or saturday night live uh are capped to do the show this is a perfect uh, uh, reason to reacquaint uh, with uh, Chris Guest, then, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> the thing that's going to be difficult about this show is that when we did the National Lampoon Radio Hour, we had a ded- we had our own studio. We had a dedicated studio. I had all those people that we mentioned before with me every day, all along, you know, Belushi and Gilda and Bill Murray and Brian Bill Murray. We were all there working together as a team, Harold Ramis. Um, we're going to be in separate places now. We're going to be, my studio control room is my computer now. And uh, we have to, we're going to do it all remotely. So it's, it's going to be a tough project to do. That in itself, I, you know, just the, the technological uh, crazy person in my head is after you figure it out, that's a, a, a question offline that I probably would ask you just, uh, What's the software? How do you do it? Uh, anyway, I, I geek out about some of that stuff. So it's uh, it's right up your. Uh, if anyone's going to do it and do it well, though, it is for sure Bob Tishler. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this these the software is real gettable, and uh, just a few pieces of hardware that you need. But basically, you can do it out of your computer, which is amazing. It is truly. One last question. It's not really that. Um, you did a lot of work with the band Three D. Yes. And they appeared on Saturday Night Live in the fifth season. Um, was your knowing the people at Saturday Night Live the reason that they were musical? Yeah, was, I helped to get them on, yeah. Yeah, my uh, original college roommate was uh, one of the members of the band. All Night Television is on my Spotify playlist. Really? <laughs> I really like that song. Well, before we wrap up, Ian, which I think you're getting ready to, I just want to say if there's anybody uh, just with the amount of just variety and depth of work and the amount of uh, just uh, wonderful people that you've uh, worked with, uh, you should be writing a book, Bob Tischler. 
Well, I'm very fortunate to have uh, worked with all these people. Uh, too much work to write a book, but <laughs> I'll be happy to do interviews anytime. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we were, this has just been a treat. Yeah, thank you very much. Fun. Thank you very much for us being allowed to talk to you. And well, thank you. We will put in a plug because this will come out in November because I tape three months ahead. So when this comes out, American Bystander will be only a month away. That's great. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay. Thanks so much, Bob. I'm going to stop.